0: You need 10 men in a city to have a synagogue. They didn't have 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. And therefore, Paul would go, and he would meet a businesswoman named Lydia, and she would have a a host of fellowship in her house. And Paul began to share the gospel there in Philippi, as you know. There was a slave girl who had a a spirit, a medium, a fortune-telling spirit that would predict what was going to happen In the future and so this gal followed paul and silas and everywhere she would interrupt paul speaking and said these guys are these guys are jewish people these guys are proclaiming the way of salvation paul was getting irritated at her and then spoke to the spirit in her and cast out that demon which created a conflict because it mean that it would mean for her that she would no longer have that gift which would mean that she would no longer bring money in for her owners. We saw last week that because of that, Paul and Silas were sought out and they were beaten by those rods, those Roman rods that would bruise the spine, break the ribs. They were beaten badly. And then they were imprisoned and put in stocks, as you'll see, as we go through there. And in that, Time as you think about their suffering all the way through the night when they came back to if they tried to gain strength they began to worship and and near midnight singing praises and hymns while all the other prisoners were listening God did a miracle at midnight and, and there was an earthquake. It was a natural miracle in the sense he used the things that were there but it was important because in that In that they had gone through an injustice from the uh, magistrates having put them in prison, beaten with rods, and then uh, put them in stocks. That earthquake uh, not only would break down the prison wall, but the miracle was that nobody ran away. And the result would have been, because of that Roman jailer, he could have committed suicide knowing that he failed to do his duty. But God protected him because he turned to Paul and Silas He said, what must I do to be saved? In desperation, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he was. And therefore, he and his household in the middle of the night got up and uh, ministered, fixed uh, bandages to Paul and Silas's wounds and gave them something to eat. That miracle was in this jail, this little jail, that when you think of jail and prisons, it helps me to visualize what they went through. And so <clears throat> with that earthquake, that wall fell over and opened the prison. And there, if you were to go there today, this is what you would see. We talked about those rods last week. Those rods will come into play again today because those rods that were used to beat Paul were 12 rods bound together with a leather bound at the top and and bound at the bottom. And those rods have, have been proliferated around the world whenever there's a government that talked about strength in numbers. And so when you imagine taking 12 pool cues, binding them together and then using that to beat somebody... That's the symbol of the faces that are used in our United States Congress. If you'll notice to the right and the left of the flag, those are Roman faces. That there's a meaning to this. And that's what we always wanna get to, that that meaning is imprinted on a number of our symbols. Uh, Here's the mercury dime from 1925 to 46. On the back, you'll see that faces there on the right-hand side. But the the idea that I want to get to today is what's also stamped is we've borrowed from the Greeks and the Romans when they have that symbol, e pluribus unum, out of many or from many, one. And you'll see that all the way through Washington and various buildings. But I want to take this and lift it up to change it a little bit and, and explain that they would say e pluribus unum, out of the many, out of the group that's out of your tribe, the, the, the strength in numbers idea is not what Paul is going to talk about here in Philippians. And so I'm going to take the liberty to change that. Can I do that? I guess I can. And I would change it this way, e Christos Pluribus unum. In Christ, many are one. And so the strength is not in the numbers. The strength is not in the people that you run with. The the strength is not in the nation you belong to. The strength is not in any political party, any, any democratic, any doctrine, any social club. The strength for Paul is in Christ. And that's what's happening in in Philippians, that anyone, Gentile, Jew, free man, slave, male, female, young or old, Christ is open and accessible to all. And to all who come to Christ, in Christ there is unity. Now this is a difficult, difficult theme because it's the part of the, in the human spirit to not, Connect because we have been separated from God and we're separated from one another and we're separated from ourselves. There's something on the inside that's disconnected and therefore we don't think straight all the time. Knowing what's right to do, we do what's wrong. Knowing what's wrong to do, we don't do what's right. And so there's an inner conflict, something that's not put together. But in Christ, Gentiles and Jews are united. And you go into the New Testament, the seven Gentile cities that Paul goes to are trying to get the the Gentiles to understand what the Jews understand, that in God there's unity. And now to open the door to the Gentiles and bring the nations into the kingdom of God isn't a national thing. It isn't a tribal thing. It's a kingdom thing. And therefore, in Christ, all believers are called the people of God. And that's what we're going to get into. But if you look at this way of thinking for the, for the Philippians, uh, they grew up thinking e pluribus unum, which is strength in number, strength in purpose, strength in restoring. That is our tribe. But in Christ, is different. In Christ, it's strength in Christ. Christ is always accessible. Christ is always available to you, and to you, and to you, and to you, and to me, and to all of us. It's Christ for the nations. And in Christ, in Christ, we have hope. Not in the human side, but on the divine side. In Christ, there's hope. And in Christ, you'll find grace, and you'll find love. In Christ, you'll find a whole new mindset that's different that talks about other-centeredness. In Christ you'll find that. And in Christ you'll find the humility that depends upon the Holy Spirit and that is manifested in prayer. In Christ, in Christ. And so the difference is there's going to be a shift from a human-centered orientation to a kingdom of God, Christ-centered orientation. And that's what is exciting about this book. You see, Paul was introducing to Gentiles who weren't worried about circumcision, who weren't worried about the Torah, who weren't worried about dietary laws, who weren't worried about the Sabbath. They were just worried. Paul was introducing a no-worry zone where your relationship with Christ would be restored at table, as it were. And therefore... As you go into this story, you have to think uh, with me as being a disciple of Paul. We are Gentiles, therefore we need to sit under the feet uh, of Paul's teaching, governed by the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, to understand what's really going on here. Because this has been going on for 2,000 years since Paul, and that Christians in every city, in every age, in every nation, God wants to do a work in you. But that means that you have to have a mind shift from an Eastern, uh, Oriental, or fleshly mindset, a Hebrew mindset versus a Greek mindset. And the, and these, these mindsets are radically different. Radically different. And you're going to have some fun. I'm, I'm getting excited about this because I know what's coming up. And I encourage you to read the book of Philippians all this month because there's something, if you're, if you're distressed or discouraged, if you're stuck and not going anywhere in your spiritual world, uh, in your spiritual life, if you, if, you don't, if you don't find stress of living in, in this fallen world uh, and you don't need hope, forget, forget the Bible. But if you really want to get your head screwed on correctly, and have your spirit lifted up, read the book of Philippians. It's the warmest book. It's an encouraging book. It's an awesome book, which you'll see. But you're in the Greek world, and the Greeks are analytical. Now, I don't know how many of you women think, uh, my husband doesn't understand because he's always trying to fix me. And the idea that men think analytically, left brain, it's problem solution. The Greeks were excellent at problem solution. They were excellent at left brain logic. And therefore philosophy grew, rationalism grew, a sense of critical dialogue grew in this culture. And therefore Plato and the great philosophers would be thinkers And they would ask these questions. If we're discussing, uh, what we are discussing is no trivial matter. For the non-believing Gentile is still asking good, good, solid questions, but they don't have good, good, solid answers. They had philosophies. They had theories. They had a strength in numbers kind of culture, enculturation, the way this is the way the world is. But this idea is how should a man live? The Gentile answer is going to be different than Paul's answer. But the Gentile answer is still here today because the Gentile answer in our day excludes Christ as an answer. And therefore, growing up in the late um, 70s and 80s and 90s, you would hear the secular world coming in strongly. It says, you do not need religion for the answer. And therefore, Kenneth Clark on Civilization, his work with Bronowski and Carl Sagan, they would say the only thing that really matters is the real world, the material world as you see it. It's the political energy, it's how you construct it, it's how you make your life work. Be all you can be, but it's up to you, is the secular answer. And this came out when I was going through college. I heard this guy, Francis Schaeffer. And he wrote this series, a famous series. And now it's 40, 40-some, 40 45 years old now. And he asked the same question. But the question is, how then shall we live? Chuck Colson asked the same question, wrote this book, another guy. Uh, again, this question is, is always out there. But if you were to answer that, how, how should we live? Well, you would probably give the tribal answer, the national answer, answer, the the answer that you grew up with, conditioned by the culture that you're in. But Paul is going to challenge all of those things because how would Paul answer that question might be different, especially as you get into the book of Philippians. It's really an exciting answer, but it's something I want you to think about with me because this book is going to give you that answer. And it's a great answer. And and so let me begin by saying that the way you think about your answer is going to be your world view. And these ideas and your thinking really are going to affect your actions. As you'll see, that as a, the way a man thinks in his life is the way he's going to behave in the world. If you're a pessimist, if you think pessimistically, you're going to act pessimistically. So the pessimist... Pessimist complains about the wind, the optimist expects it to change. <laughs> it's just a shift of focus. The realist adjusts the sails. And so this idea of how you're going to answer according to your perspective, for the, for the Philippians and the Greeks and the Romans, they had an answer. How, do you, how are you going to live? Well, you've got to do it together. Because united we stand, divided we fall. That's from Aesop, um, one of their own. Uh, but not only was it popular then, it's popular today as you think about civil rights and Martin Luther King, who said, We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Again, not a new thought. This is a human thought that strengthened numbers. And there was another guy named um, Abe. Lincoln. Now, if you notice on Abe's seat, at the right hand and the left hand, those columns are the fasces, the the strength in numbers. He's resting on that unity, and he was the one who said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Actually, he plagiarized. Jesus said that first. But because Abe Lincoln read this Bible, he knew the Bible, he knew what Jesus said, and this is what I want to say to you in light of that, that we have been for uh, thinking about here at Chesterton and what, what defines us. And what I want to have you understand and embrace and be able to communicate well is that we want to be a Christ-centered church, not a man-centered church, and not a social club, but we want to be a spiritual people that love God because the Holy Spirit has come to indwell within us, because he makes known to us what the work of the cross is. But we are Christ-centered, and in that, this book will help us become more focused on Christ. And as we do so, what's going to happen in your life, personally, is the way you think, the way you feel, the way you say and speak to people, the way you act out, is going to be a reflection of Christ in you. This is what Paul is after, to help you become more Christ-centered, and, and, and that perspective of what does that mean, we're going to find out here. Now, the idea that you have influences on you, and the way that you think and interpret the world, and answer that question, how we shall live, I just want to... I want to take a little rabbit trail here to the side to say that it's interesting in our day and age that something's happening in our thinking. And as you hear the news, as you go on, I'm concerned about this movement of the QAnon to blend Christianity in with QAnon and politics. And it's, it's scary. So let me ima- remind you, do not be duped. And do not be uh, led astray For the simplicity and the purity of the things in Christ. There's danger here, so be on guard. But just to point out a couple of things for a point to make. A quarter of Americans see QAnon claims as accurate. Now notice the difference here. Notice the difference of perception, and that's what I want to get. It's how you're seeing the world, how we're going to live, QAnon or non-QAnon. It's but there are a lot of people who don't know. But you see the division. There's no strength here because there's the split. There's division here. Well, I bring this up for this reason. The same thing takes place in an independent democracy like us because you have, you have your opinion. We have the freedom to think, of course. But when it comes to this book, how do you think we think How do you think we think about this book? Are we all in agreement with what this is about? Oh, no. For the same division is taking place in our country about this book. Who believes the Bible more, men or women? Well, let me show you. In this this statistic, Gallup did a poll in 2017 that said, uh, this is the U.S. men. And the men who take this Bible as being the literal heaven delivered accurate word of God, only twenty three percent of the men think this is the literal word of God. You add to that that forty six percent would say well it's not the literal word of god but it's 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 the word of god but it's it's kind of uh, illustrated in lots of ways, but it's it's an inspired word of God, so we should pay attention to it. But you'll notice that 30% say, ah, it's just a bunch of Jewish folklore. 30% of our country. Okay, now now how about women? Well, women are in the same line because we're in this culture. We tend to think, women tend to think, well, it's 24%, pretty close to the men. 48% 48% say it's inspired. That's, I, I need this inspiration. And, and again, 24, 24% said, ah, it's Jewish folklore. So there's a division the way we think, of course, and it looks pretty similar when you put them side by side. What I want you to see is this, and here's the point Paul and Silas are going into Philippi they're going into a world that has no understanding of the Word of God. And their percentage, if you put it on the chart, it would look like 24%, uh, that's not right, it's zero percent, believe it's the actual Word of God, uh, point, 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 zero, 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 zero. It's just this handful of people were just written about and getting started in, in, uh, in Philippi. But most of the people in Philippi thought, ah, that's old Jewish stuff over there in Israel. That's their tribal stuff. That's the way they think. That's not us. So it should be zero. Nobody believes it's the word of God because they didn't have that. The challenge for Paul is the same challenge for us. How do you communicate this worldview to people who don't believe it? And that's what Paul begins to say. He was introducing to this group a whole new way of thinking about how to answer that question. How should a man live? Well, yes, he should live in unity. Yes, he should live with diversity. But he has to live with Paul. And this is the answer in Philippians. There's a joy. There's a joy in Christ. And if you understand, it's the joy of the Lord that becomes our very strength. To that the Philippians say, what are you talking about? They would have no idea. The secular man says, what are you talking, the joy of the Lord. Philippians going to answer that. How should you live? With joy. Well, remember Galatians. <clears throat> The theme of Galatians is freedom in Christ. The theme of Philippians is the surpassing, the ascending, the transcending, the, the, the wonderful joy that we have in Christ. Well, again, remember, these are Gentiles. And the promise that they don't know that God is doing among the Gentiles is something that the Old Testament prophecy would become fulfilled. In the book of Hosea, uh, Hosea the prophet would say, I will sow her for myself in the land, Israel, and I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, Israel. But I will also say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is the Philippians included right here not only would would Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah bring this promise in but Peter picked this up in the New Testament as did Paul when he understand that God's moving towards the Gentiles and Peter wrote you are a chosen people Jew and Gentile you are a chosen people all of you are a royal priesthood all of you are a holy nation a people for God's own possession, Gentiles, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you, Gentiles, out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, Gentile, you have received mercy This is a wonderful passage because in answering that question uh, about being united with Christ, Paul picks up the idea in his perception that we're not united, we're divided by our sin, and in our, divide, in our division, we need someone to rescue us, to bring us back together to be at table. This is the messianic promise, that the lion and the lamb will lay down together, that there will be peace in the land for those who are walking in darkness. There'd be Jew and Gentile coming together in unity because of Christ, and there would be no separation there be no division. there be no conflict at the core because you're in Christ, I'm in Christ, we're together as brothers in Christ. You're in Christ, you're in Christ, we're together as sisters in Christ. We are one in Christ. And out of Christ, many become one. That's the theme. And this is what I want you to hear. Jesus Christ has what we want. Jesus Christ has what we need. He will do that work if we are in Christ. And therefore, this is the surpassing joy that that what we were built for, Christ wants to do for us and make sure that we are together. He prayed for this unity. He prayed for what what people are marching on Washington for. God knows about unity. And in Christ, he gave himself for this very fact that you would become a people of mercy, a people of compassion, a people of acceptance, a people of inclusion, a people of, that's really restored at table. And this is the work that Paul saw God begin in Philippi. So look at one verse today, Philippians 1.6. And we're going to look at this uh, because I'm going to use this as the springboard for the series as we go through what on earth is God doing for heaven's sake? Well, I mean, not for heaven's sake, but for sake uh, you know. So Philippians one six, Paul says this, "I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ, Jesus." You know when you do Bible study, sometimes you read that so quickly and you get over, you pick this word and you pick that word. We're going very slowly because there are some things here I want you to see. The work God began. What is that work? You'll see it develop in the next uh, series of sermons, but the look at the work that God is doing. Well, when you have tools and you're going to create something. You start with an idea, a design, what you think and imagine, your creativity. is not problem-centered, it's more design-creative-centered. And so when you take the tools you pick up, if you're gonna build, uh, if you're gonna build a table, if you're gonna do some crocheting, you have some pattern, some idea. Likewise, Michelangelo said, When he sculpted David, the sculpture is already complete within the marble. Before I start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. Can you imagine the wonder of how well he chiseled that statue of David to make it a work of art? Likewise, the Holy Spirit does the same thing with you and with me. He does work to make us beautiful, to make us strong, to make us wise. This is the work that he began. But imagine taking a piece of stone. Which is harder, to carve out sculpture or to carve out the spirit in your own heart? Hmm. Same for artists. When you get that palette and mix that paint, you just don't. Let's see if this works. Let's see (laughs) if this works. You have a design, that you have an idea. So when you paint as the Philippian artists would do, they would follow like artists today do. They imagine what the image, we are made in the image of God. This is the work that God is going to do. Therefore, God began the work. And Paul says, I am confident. The other words are translated persuaded. I am uh, uh, I am convinced, I, I believe. All these things, you think, how did Paul get persuaded? It wasn't in what he saw, it's in who he knew. Because he says, it is he who, I'm confident in he who began the work. He's the author and the finisher of the work. But Paul's confidence is not in the work, it's in the author the artist the one who's doing the work and therefore he says this work he who this is a god work it's a divine work it's a work that's a grander work of the holy spirit than you could do as a human but this is an unseen work This is the salvation, as Paul would proclaim. It is a good work. It's a quickening, renewing, transforming work in the human soul. He generates a new life. He forms new desires. He lifts us into an alliance with God, into an intimacy, a spiritual work that doesn't take place apart from him. He reconnects and he restores us to the divine image and he equips us upon this earth with the kingdom of heaven itself. All those resources are on the pallet of the Holy Spirit and he gives to us. That's why this book is so encouraging. And his loving work is the beginning of our beginning to love. It's the work, uh, Paul would say, this work that began in Philippi, I'm convinced of this very thing. Now, what's the very thing he's talking about? Well, if you do some study, you'll hear different translations on this. So I came across three and added one of my own. The three things that you hear is, well, this is about salvation and John MacArthur and others would talk about this being the progressive work that God began it. God will continue to do this called sanctification. And, And so salvation is the beginning of a relationship. Sanctification is the improving of that relationship. And glorification is the perfecting. When you get home, you'll be at table. That's one view that this is an ongoing work in the Christian. And that's, some people say, well, that's not what this is about. Some people say, yes, it is about. So there's a difference in how you see this. I think you can make this case that it is. But it, another person says, this is more about the work that the Philippians have started in giving money, a project, as it were, that you're going to finish this project to support people in Jerusalem who are going through hard times. There's a, there's a hunger A famine in Jerusalem and so Paul is collecting money throughout all the Gentile churches to send to the Jerusalem brothers as a manifestation that the Spirit of God has bound them together to care for each other. That's justified as well because you'll see that in other passages. But the third one is that isn't mentioned a lot is that this is God's Spirit opening up the missions of Gentiles. And the work that he began in Philippi, he had never done before. And therefore, it's a missionary work. And the fourth one I'm going to add is that this is kingdom work. That God, through the Messiah, coming in as prophet, priest, and king, is going to open up a work for the Gentiles and bring them in. And that the kingdom of heaven will be the taste of a new humanity on earth. It's going to be a different kind of people a people of truth, a people of light, a people of compassion, but a people who are intimate with their God. And so Paul says this work God has begun is a good work. It's a work of salvation, and God is going to perfect it. But that perfect means to mature to make it complete, to make it adequate. It's an individual work like he did with Lydia, like he did with the jailer, like he does with you and like he does with me. It's an inward work that maybe I won't see it because it'll happen when you're alone with Christ on Tuesday night or Thursday morning. Or it's I won't see you when he does that. You will, if you're paying attention. It is a progressive work. It is a participatory work. You have to be part of this. And therefore, all that we go through, the sufferings that Paul went through, the blessings that we go through, all are used to hammer out those beliefs that just get in the way of our understanding of Christ. Read this passage this way. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began to work in you, and read Gentiles there. God is interested in the lost when they're not interested in him. God is interested in those who are fighting him and they're not, they, they don't have any interest in responding to Christ. But he started this work among non-Jewish people. People who had no faith. People who had no background. They didn't understand. The spirit opened their eyes. This is what God began. And he will perfect it mature this until the day of Christ Jesus means there is coming a day when the joy that you were meant to sit at the feet of Christ face to face you will have that you'll be reunited with loved ones you will be in heaven there'll be no more death and no more tears that day of judgment is is coming but for you there's no judgment because there's no condemnation in Christ that day is coming and therefore to understand this book is to understand the love of God in such a way that the joy of Christ is your strength now the Philippians were just starting off on this journey likewise some of us are just starting some of us have gone a little way and gone back we're all over the place because we're not focused enough and this is what Paul wants to have us to understand how shall we live how are we going to answer that question? Well, Paul's going to give you the answer for me to live as Christ, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And if that's true for the people of God, you become an unstoppable unity. There's the strength in numbers because we are all united in Christ. This is fascinating. And so be prepared to To go a little deeper in the scripture, expect the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life, because his joy is not just happiness, it's not entertainment and fun it's a joy that once you get a hold of, that stamps your soul that says, I'm so glad that God touched me, called me, I belong to Christ, and you do too, and therefore. Be prepared as we go into Philippians. This is gonna be another one of those great, great studies. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we just simply say, open our eyes and may you begin the work afresh that the Spirit of God would teach us about this thing of joy, your joy, and draw us close to you. Father, we listen as your disciples, so it's for your glory and our growth we pray.